This is the Education Gadfly Show. Yeah. I was explaining the difference between an Ewok and a Wookiee. And they are not related. Um, we figured that out eventually, yes. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Alyssa Schwenk of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-host, the J.J. Abrams of Education Reform, right. Brandon Wright. Good one. Cool, so, cool, yeah. Initially, it was actually going to be an Adele reference since Adele is dropping a new album, but I thought you might Adele's have... good, too. Right, but I thought you might have more to say about the new... It's Star Wars, I, right? I actually just saw that uh, I, like, 10 minutes ago, mm-hmm. I read that the Star Wars tickets went on pre-sale, mm-hmm. and... They broke a record for pre-sale, which was previously held by The Hunger Games, but it didn't just break it. It's already sold like eight times more than The Hunger Games did. So it's already sold out like 16,000 screens or something. The movie doesn't come out, by the way, till December 18th. That's insane, right? Like, I... Rabid following. I admit... I'm excited about it, though. I admit to not being a huge Star Wars fan, but, you know, I gotta respect. Like, this many people coming out, hopefully it's going to be a good show. And I liked Lost, and I did, and I liked his two Star Trek films, and I, mean, I think he'll do a good job. I have many opinions on Lost, but that would be an entirely <laughs> different podcast and take like three hours. Sure, so sure. let's just skip ahead to right. Pardon the Gadfly. Uh, Clara, first question. Intel will withdraw its support of the science talent search, but will continue to fund Maker Fair and Maker Con. What does this mean for STEM education? Brandon? Um, I think STEM education will be fine. Uh, I think it's good that they're sticking with the other two. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of wish it would stick with all three, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the science talent search, um, will be fine. I think they'll find another sponsor, mm-hmm. but, um, I guess I wish Intel would have pulled out with kind of a replacement in mind or, mm-hmm lined up um i just don't like the kind of trend of moving away from something i think um that's as important as the science talent search there just aren't very many of these kind of science fair competitions that that the u.s does right i think so i think it's more symbolic than actual the kids who do sts i don't think are representative of kids nationwide and the science education that kids nationwide receive that being said i think it's hugely important for kids who have like an interest in research that this be cultivated um but i think the maker fair you know it does the same thing but in a very different direction it's kind of geared towards the same kids the same types of kids seem to participate i don't think it's necessarily representative of where science education in america is going but i do see it kind of as you know this these are the skills that we as tech firms value we want kids who can hack and build and create things and take mm-hmm. things apart which is not the type of science that sts necessarily promotes that being said sure. i do think in terms of what there always needs to be more offerings for gifted kids in science there are so few already mm-hmm. but, uh i agree yeah i agree so should be interesting indeed Question two. Several articles last week focused on the so-called Asian advantage that allows Asian American students to excel in school. Do you buy this argument and how broadly does it apply? I do not buy this argument and I do not think it uh, applies very broadly. I certainly do think, though, and Brandon, feel free to push back, that certain aspects of parenting and certain aspects of learning that 
Asian families and Asian culture might promote do tend to have stronger outcomes. Um, something this was brought on by a Nate Kristoff article entitled "The Asian Advantage," um, and a lot of things that he brings up, you know, two parent households, an emphasis on education, an emphasis on self discipline, like those are going to create advantages for any kid who implements them. But at the same time, I don't think that when we say the Asian advantage, we're talking about all Asian students. We're focusing on you know, Chinese American students or perhaps Indian American students. And I think saying that all Asian American students excel in school kind of obfuscates some achievement gaps and opportunity gaps that we're going to see in the um, in within the whole pantheon of Asian American students. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I think what what we're really talking about here is is culture um and uh it's culture that's kind of brought over from these different asian Mm -hmm. countries um the majority of which actually do really really well Mm -hmm. um even the ones that tend to be a little less uh affluent um right they 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 kind of have an an approach to education and kind of smart kids Mm -hmm. that holds that uh that the kids who get the best grades aren't the smartest they just work, work the, the hardest. hardest. Um, whereas Americans tend to think that the kids who get the best grades are the smartest. Um, Christoph makes a good point. It's probably somewhere in between those two mm-hmm. things. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think culture is really hard to change. And I mm-hmm. think there is a legitimate difference here. Um, a legitimate cultural influence that does push these kids, uh, grades up. Um, but at the same time, I, I I don't think culture is impossible to change, and I think we can we can take some of these things uh, or take some of the things that these countries do, um, like kind of uh, put kids into different schools based on mm-hmm. exam scores at a you know at like a high school age, um, universally screen kids um, when they're in in. Uh, uh, elementary school and continue to do that. But still, I, I don't really know how you change American culture. Um, I mean, I guess we could try to get people to carry, care less about the football team and care more about things like the science talent search. Uh, <laughs> As a University of Michigan I fan, I feel like that's hopeful. hard for you to say. It's not hard for me to say <laughs> after... After Saturday, I don't know if you saw the game on Saturday. Sportsing, Brandon, sportsing. <laughs> I'll quickly tell you because it is <laughs> worth talking about. Michigan <laughs> go. was going to beat state and they had 10 seconds to go. They were punting from the 50 yard line, 10 seconds. All they had to do was punt the ball and they would win. They, they fumbled the punt and state ran it all the way back and scored with no time left <laughs> to beat Michigan. It was like the worst thing I've ever seen on a football field. So I'm okay not caring about football after this weekend. <laughs> not caring or a you bit can't of a care anymore. But I will continue to care, but it's it's I'm trying not to think about it. Okay. I'm trying not to think about it. I mean, so reading a couple of these articles reminded me of last year when uh, everyone's favorite tiger mom, Amy Chua, came out with a book. I think it was the triple thread or the triple package. It was something triple that package, yeah. made me think of Disney stars of yore. Yes. Um, I reviewed it when I was did any of those lessons, did any of the insights she had about, you know, cultures where certain traits or value resonate as you were either, you know, looking over these articles this week or doing your research into the book that you and Checker just published? Uh, I didn't really think about it um, at the time, but yeah, there's there's definitely overlap there. Um, and we definitely talk about culture in our 
in our book. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't really know how you change it. Um, and if you do, it would be over a very long period of time. Right. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure it's, it's a tough nut to crack. It certainly is. Okay. So on to another tough nut because this next question's a doozy, Clara. Charter schools have become a divisive issue in made many major U S cities. Could a parent's preference for district or charter schools predict how they vote in the 2016 election? So I'm going to take this question and parse. What do we mean by 2016 election? Because I think there are two different answers. Um, The Education Post had a really interesting article uh, that just recently came out looking at why education isn't more of a... um, you know, a voting issue that people really make their decisions about in national elections. And I don't think if you look at the national election that whoever it comes down to on the Democratic side and the Republican side, that education is going to be one of those issues. I think we've seen it not get that much play in debates. Iran, ISIS, there are a lot of things that you can ask a presidential uh, candidate about. But I do think that education is a voting issue in a lot of elections. And I think over the next two years, we're going to see it emerge in some really strange and interesting ways in a couple of local races. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it comes down to, you know, who really has control over schools and Mm -hmm. that's people at the district, the city, the state, et cetera. Um, I do wish that education was talked about more, presidentially that's for sure um right uh some of our colleagues m- make arguments about the the, the bully pulpit um mm-hmm. right kind of s- signaling to americans and to their party the direction that they think education should go um mm-hmm. as a leader of the country i think that's important mm-hmm. at the same time i don't really think it's going to decide many people's votes yeah i mean there are there are bigger issues and issues that the president influences directly yeah and i mean education is one of those issues where you know it's not necessarily a like you're a republican this is your parting line you're a democrat this is your party line like it's one of those issues where you can be a liberal but certainly support a lot of education reform platforms that have been on the republican agenda or you can be on the right and support you know some things that are coming kind of more traditionally from the left. Um, It's one of those kind of confusing issues. I know when I talk about being in education, a lot of my friends are surprised and see a Mm. lot of my views as conflicting. Um, Yeah, there there are definitely a lot of people on the left in this office, but our office is about ed reform, right? right. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, I think you're exactly right. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've had eight years of President Obama and Arne Duncan and now John King, which have been a pretty reformy liberal agenda. And Richard Whitmire had a great piece in USA Today recently about how that might change and how there's this schism in Democrat, Democratic education politics. And I don't think it's necessarily news to anyone who's been around the block. Certainly Democrats for Education Reform, Andy Rotherham, a lot of people on the left have been writing about reform issues in a way that don't necessarily align with, you know, party platforms. But I do think it's a very interesting thing that's going to develop over the next couple of years and become more prominent since Hillary Clinton does not quite, as far as we can tell, as far as she's messaged, align with what President Obama has done in office. Right. So I agree. Should be interesting. Let's come back to that question in about a year. Um, (laughs) And I think that's all of the time we have for Pardon the Gadfly today. Up next, Amber's Research Minute. Hi, David. Hi, Alyssa. Good to be here. How's it going? It's going well. 
So we were discussing earlier, and I know you're going to have a lot of opinions about this, J.J. Abrams and Star Wars. Yes, my opinion is, can't it come out already? (laughs) Yeah, no, so you were, you actually got me earlier today. We were discussing the first three or the first set. I'm clearly tripping over myself here. (laughs) I was explaining the difference between an Ewok and a Wookiee. And they are not related. Um, We figured that out eventually, yes. So see, here's where I tripped up, and Audrey actually agrees with me. I I was discussing this with her earlier. Ewok and Wookiee sound related, so one of them could be a diminutive of the other, not unlike cat and kitten. It was a linguistic thing. I I gotcha. Um, maybe I can get you a uh, a pet Ewok for Christmas or something. Last year I got a Mickey Mouse Chia pet, so I'll just add it to the collection. Okay, sounds good. But okay, moving <laughs> on. What do you got for us today? All right, uh, today we'll be discussing the Teach for America 2015 National Principles Survey, uh, which was conducted by the Rand Corporation earlier this year. Uh, In this survey, which was last administered in 2013, Rand asked uh, the 3,000 plus principals who currently have TFA core members at their schools about their views on those core members. Uh, And roughly 1,800 of these principals, or about 54%, responded. Uh, On average, uh, these principals were less experienced, more racially and ethnically diverse uh, than the average American principal. Um, and they were much, much more likely to run a charter school. Um, however, only 12% of the, of the respondents um, were TFA alumni, so uh, having gone through the program themselves. In general, the results of the survey suggest that principals who work with TFA members view them positively. Uh, in particular, 80% of those surveyed said they were satisfied with core members at their schools, uh, and 86% said they would be willing to hire another TFA core member, said they would definitely recommend doing so to a fellow school leader. Uh, A majority of principals also said that TFA core members were at least as proficient as other novice teachers at their schools across a range of skills, um, like developing positive relationships with colleagues, um, having high expectations, etc. And then finally, 87% of principals said they were satisfied with the support TFA was providing its core members, um, and three-quarters said it complemented their own school's induction or training. Despite these positive findings, however, uh, two areas stood out as potentially problematic, neither of which will come as a huge surprise to our listeners. The first problematic area was classroom management, which half of respondents identified as a reason not to hire additional TFA core members. The second was the off-criticized two-year commitment, uh, which 57% of principals identified as a, a disincentive to hire. Uh, Interestingly, both TFA alumni and principals of charter schools viewed TFA core members and the program in general more negatively than principals at traditional uh, uh, district high schools did. Um, So, for example, both TFA alums and principals of charter schools um, said core members' subject matter expertise was lower um, and they were less satisfied with TFA's ongoing support. Um, although despite these misgivings, charter school principals were more likely to say that they, that they would hire additional TFA core members, um, maybe because they face fewer hiring restrictions uh, or have less money with which to work, making this a more attractive option. So obviously some of these differences um, could reflect different expectations, uh, uh, but then again, some of them might be grounded in reality. 
Um, maybe novice teachers in general are more knowledgeable at charter schools, making TFA core members seem less knowledgeable by comparison. It's tough to say. Uh, anyway, the, this survey isn't going to answer those sorts of questions, but it does point to some pretty important issues and findings that um, may seem counterintuitive. Um, first of all, principals at traditional schools uh, are pretty satisfied with TFA, uh, but uh, principals at charter schools are less so. Not something that most people would expect, I think. Um, and then second, uh, and less surprisingly, I guess, um, some of the big, big issues are still there. Um, so particularly classroom management um, and the issue of turnover, um, which is sort of evergreen. So let's get down to it. All right. Very interesting. As an alum of TFA, a proud one, I'm heartened to hear that we are continuing to do well. Um, but what was interesting to me is the what you pointed out about charter school principals and alums being less satisfied. And I don't know. Do you think that's like an issue of like higher expectations? You know, if you're teaching, if you're leading a KIPP school, like you want each and every teacher to bring an A game, or do you think it's more of a like back in my day, like when we were an alum, like we were smarter, we were better prepared, etc. Uh, I, I think it's uh, a little bit more of the former. Um, okay. I, I yeah, I think that they. Uh, well, I suspect this is all speculation, but it wouldn't shock me um, if alums at least um, felt unprepared when they were TFAers. Wait, wait, tell me more about that. <laughs> uh, and uh, maybe they view the current TFAers as similarly unprepared. Um, but then again, maybe all new teachers are unprepared. Um, I don't know. To me, the interesting part was that they, you know, they were still less likely charter school principals mm -hmm. were still more likely rather to hire TFA folks, uh, mm -hmm. even though they viewed them more negatively. Um, so I think that says something important about uh, sort of the job of a charter school principal versus a traditional mm -hmm. teacher. Um, you know, they have the traditional principal, rather, they have less money to work with. Um, and and they have the option of hiring two TFAers on the cheap, perhaps, as opposed to paying one 30-year um, veteran a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So regardless of how you feel about that, I think it's interesting. Do you think that these principals, based on, you know, the context they're working in, either as a charter school principal or a district school principal, like might have different ways of approaching TFA core members that would lead to those differing opinions of TFA core members? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some obvious cultural differences here, but it's pretty te uh, difficult to tease out from this survey uh, mm -hmm. alone. So I I'd love to see, you know, some sort of follow-up survey uh, done by TFA of just, uh, you know, charter school principals who hire TFA, TFA you know, uh, core members and how they view them specifically um, and sort of what would lead them to make that decision uh, as opposed to hiring a different teacher. Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly interesting when you're talking about a high-performing charter network like a KIPP or an Uncommon or something where even if the principal didn't come through TFA him or herself, like they're used to really highly performing teachers. So in comparison, a really highly performing but novice teacher might not shine as brightly as they would in a more traditional school or a school that's just less intense. Do you know if they broke it out by like high performing charters versus all charters versus district or just charter schools lump sum? I can tell you definitively that they did not break it out. <laughs> and as uh, alumni of charter schools in Washington, D.C., I think we can say that there is a widespread of quality within charter schools. And a widespread of type. So certainly a fascinating study, certainly a lot more to explore, but definitely a really interesting uh piece of research that we hope you all check out all right and that's actually all the time we have for the entire gadfly show till next week 
I'm Brandon Wright. And I'm Alyssa Schwenk for the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.